This is Generation Justice. I'm Erwin Rivera. And I'm Tamara Kalaki. Generation Justice is a multimedia project that trains youth to create media that inspires social change. Tonight, we're welcoming our newest fellow, Kateri Zuni. The Generation Justice Fellowship is a career pipeline for young journalists of color to build their skills while becoming the next generation of socially conscious media makers. As we welcome our newest GJ Fellow, we will spotlight an issue that Generation Justice has been working on for the past several months, New Mexico's behavioral health crisis. We bring you stories about how this crisis is affecting people today. Our community is rich with many people who do so much to make New Mexico better and our wonderful community calendar will help you stay connected. And as usual, we have some good vibes for the night. Tonight, we start off with Kendrick Lamar's song, I. Tribulation, but I know God. Satan wanna put me in a bow tie. Pray that the holy water don't go dry. Yeah, yeah. As I look around me, so many people really wanna tell me, but they don't be gonna never tell me. In front of a dirty double mirror, they tell me, and I love myself. The world is a ghetto, big guns and big guys. This is the third year of the Generation Justice Fellowship. Here is Christina Rodriguez with Kateri Zuni, who we welcome into our GJ family. This is Christina with Generation Justice, and I am so excited tonight to be welcoming in our newest fellow, Katerie Zuni. Welcome so much, Katie. Thank you. Do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself to start us off? Uh, sure. So my name is Katerie Zuni. Um, I am from uh, Zuni Pueblo, as well as Isleta Pueblo. Um, I grew up here in Albuquerque, though. Um, right now, I'm a senior at UNM. Uh, my major is multimedia journalism, and I'm minoring in political science. Um, I do have my own little family, so I have my son and my husband um, that have been with me through it all. And um, now I'm just glad to be part of this new family that I'm kind of carving myself into right now. We're so happy to have you here as well. What is it about Generation Justice that made you apply for the fellowship? Um, well, I had heard about Generation Justice um, before uh, from one of our instructors, and um, I never really put too much time into looking into it, uh, but after I heard about the fellowship this year, I spent some time on the website uh, reading the stories, listening to the radio shows and blogs, um, and I really found myself kind of gravitating towards the core values. Um, I really appreciate that all of the work here is done from a place of love and um, out of respect and concern for our community. Um, I just think that that's so essential to what journalism is really trying to do. Um, if we're not approaching things with those core values in mind, then you know what kind of work are we really gonna do? It's not gonna be effective and it's not gonna be as worthwhile. Um, so. That's that's really what what brought me here. That's what made me think like I've I've got to be a part of this. So I went for it. <laughs> and what do you think that you're going to bring to Generation Justice? Um. Well, I mean, I'm still a student, and as far as I'm concerned, GJ is still kind of teaching me. So what I have to bring is really just my story, my own experience um, in life so far. 
Um, like I said, I have a family, and so not a lot of students kind of, kind of come from that place of, you know, approaching decisions uh, with their son or their family in mind. And I think, um, you know, all of the, the stories that we talk about are really personal, and they affect families, they affect women and mothers and people in the community. And so, you know, I know what it's like to be concerned about an issue from the standpoint of being a mother or being a wife. Um, before I even started college, um, before I came to UNM and before I um, really knew that I wanted to even go to school, um, I was diagnosed with a disease called aplastic anemia, and it's a bone marrow failure. And when I was going through that part of my life, I lost a lot of time and I was separated from my family. So, you know, that experience really kind of is always in the back of my head when I do really anything else from here on out. And so when I think back about the story that we did on prison phone justice and how families were disconnected and, you know, having a hard time just reaching out to each other, I think about that when, when we talk about those stories or when we talk about um, coming up the behavioral health system. I know what it's like to be a part of a hospital system and feel like you're not being heard or having to worry about things like insurance when all you really are trying to do is get better. So because those issues, you know, affect me in those ways, I know that it's not just about numbers or policies. It's about family and people. And I think that's, that's where I'm coming from. I think that's a really beautiful place to come from, though, especially as a journalist and especially here at this fellowship. I think that we have an opportunity to learn from these issues and we get to learn from them every single day. So what are you looking forward to learning about here at Generation Justice in this next year? Um, well, I'm about four weeks in. So right now I'm really just kind of enamored and excited about, you know, learning the technical stuff, video and audio editing. Um, you know, learning how to become a, vet, a better writer, a better photographer. Um, all of that hands-on stuff is really exciting right now. Um, later on, I just, I really want to come out of the ex experience with, I guess, more confidence and a really, a better understanding of who I want to be as a journalist. You know, where I want to put my passion into and, you know, how I can make my best work. I think that's a really great question to be asking yourself, though. Like, what kind of journalist do I want to be? How did you decide that you wanted to become a journalist? Um, well, I think as a child, I always loved being read to. I love stories. I love hearing, you know, what's going on in the world. Um, I also love writing. Uh, as I got older through high school, I loved writing and photography, which is itself a form of storytelling. Um, and so I just thought, you know, I know that I have a story in me. I don't know exactly what it is right now. So what better way to get that out than to tell other people's stories? Um, and also like I've, I've worked for a corporation, I've done a nine to five job and you know, there's, that's okay. It pays the bills and it gets you by, but I wasn't feeling, I wasn't feeling my work and I want to feel my work. I want to feel like I'm making some kind of a difference, and I think that journalism is a way to do that. Um, the stories that we tell here, they've made me cry, they've made me angry, and so that's how I know that I'm on the right path, because I'm responding to them. 
I think that's really important as well as the journalist to, to really feel and to follow it with your heart. And a big theme of the first and second year fellowships seems to have come around the phrase of we stand on the shoulders of giants and that we succeed because of the people that came before us. And there's bigger themes around this. And whose shoulders do you stand on? Um, I would say that I probably would call my giants uh, my mother and my older sister. Um, they taught me what it is to be a woman. They teach me every day what it is to be a good mother to my son. Um, my mother in particular started out um, as a temporary secretary and she really moved her way up and she always did it from a point of integrity and you know she never had to rely on people to and she she's never going to ever have to say that I'm successful because of this person or this person. Mm. It's all because of her own hard work. And I keep that in mind anytime I, I start an endeavor like this. She's my giant. <laughs> I think it's really important, especially as women of color, that I can totally relate that we look up to our mothers and our own sisters as points of strength and of example of who we can be in society. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Um, yes. You you mentioned uh, women of color. And um, I also think it's very important uh, for women in color of color to, um, to work together. And so I think my last thought would have to be to thank um, my fellow fellow, <laughs> uh, Polly Dinetkoff, for reaching out to me and telling me about this. I met her in my Native Studies class, and she didn't really know me. We didn't know each other, um, but she pulled me aside one day, and she said, you'd be great for this. And so I looked into it, and I applied, and I'm just so grateful to her for that. I am a strong believer that women need to pull each other up instead of breaking each other down, um, particularly women of color, indigenous women. Nobody else is really going to do that for us. so. That meant a lot. Thank you. I'm glad to have you as part of our sisterhood and part of our family. Um, thank you so much, Katerie. It's an honor to have you here. Welcome to our Generation Justice family. Thank you. Thank you, Katerie, for sharing with us tonight. I'm so excited to work with you. And thanks to Christina for that great welcome to Katerie. Here's a song that Katerie selected. It is Rudy Can't Fail by The Clash. For the past several months, with the support of the Conalma Foundation, Gigi has been trying to understand New Mexico's behavioral health system and the challenges in it. For months, Gigi has been involved in conducting research and talking to many advocates, policymakers, doctors, and other providers, and, of course, most importantly, the families who use behavioral health services. Many feel that New Mexico has a behavioral health crisis. To help us understand this more, we wanted to speak to an expert in this arena. 
State Senator Ortiz Pino is that expert. Senator Ortiz Pino has spent the last 11 years as a New Mexico state senator and over 30 years working in the behavioral health field. Senator Ortiz Pino is one of the most knowledgeable experts on New Mexico's behavioral health system. Here is Senator Ortiz Pino with Cristina Rodriguez. Welcome, Senator Jerry Ortiz Pino. Please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, I'm Jerry Ortiz Pino. I've been in the state senate for 11 years. The last three years, I've been chairman of the Senate Public Affairs Committee, which is where health and mental health issues all go. Can you help me to understand the behavioral health crisis? The behavioral health system is a state-administered program. It's our responsibility at the state level. And so it falls on the legislature to finance it adequately and the administration to design and operate and make sure that it's functioning well. You know, I, I don't think either of us have done a good job. You know, if, if we think of behavioral health as being alcohol, drug abuse, and mental health. How does federal Medicaid money play into this? Part of the problem is that we rely so heavily on Medicaid. It's a temptation that we've fallen into using Medicaid because it's mostly federal money. It's an easy way to finance these programs. Well, if your whole system's finances are Medicaid, and Medicaid suddenly decides that they won't reimburse that because that's not a medical service, you're, you're just flat out of luck. We need a Medicaid program that integrates with other funding sources. It'll pay for things that Medicaid refuses to pay for so that they really work together. And we don't have that right now. In 2013, we were suddenly informed that the agencies that had provided over 85% of the treatment services around the state were no longer going to be able to participate in Medicaid. And since Medicaid is how we were funding our behavioral health system, then we no longer had a behavioral health system in place. We converted our behavioral health system into a managed care system, like HMOs. When you've made your behavioral health system part of that model, then all the incentive is with the HMO that runs the, the, that contract for those people to really clamp down. They're not going to spend a dime they don't have to. And so if they can get away with saying no case management, no that, no this, if they can get away with that, they will. In physical health, if they tried to do that, people would get sicker and would wind up in the hospital and would cost them more money. But in behavioral health, they wind up in jail or in a homeless shelter. It is a, a model that misses a key element. That is, if you don't treat them now, you're going to have to spend a lot more later on to treat them. So if they don't provide case management, it's okay. The psychiatrist still gets his reimbursement when he sees somebody. That's, I think, the big problem. We've used an incentive system that has no incentive in it. And we're underfunding some of the things that are most useful. And I would say the three things are case management, LADACs, and some kind of residential programming. What about substance abuse treatment? Our alcoholism programs in this state over 35 years were built up largely using what's called licensed alcohol and drug abuse counselors, LADACs. For the most part, these are paraprofessionals. They may have a BA, very few of them have master's degrees, but they, 
they're very good at what they do because many of them were themselves addicts or, or alcoholics. Well, Medicaid has slowly begun refusing to reimburse work done by LADAX. They say, well, that, they're not real behavioral health professionals, and so they won't reimburse. And because we rely on Medicaid to finance our programs now, LADAX are flat out of luck. The programs are flat out of luck. They can't attract enough social workers and psychiatrists and psychologists or counselors who are certified for Medicaid reimbursement. The HMOs, the managed care organizations, like to say, oh, all the research shows that outpatient work with alcoholics is just as effective as sending them into a hospital. But for Larry right here, who needs to get sober and needs to deal with his alcoholism, he may need to go into a residential program for a period. And so when they just baldly say no residential, no inpatient treatment, that doesn't help us deal with the real problems. In mental health services, and especially in drug and alcohol services, everything in behavioral health hinges on the relationship between the therapist and the patient. If there is no relationship, there's no treatment. It takes weeks and months to build up the confidence to create a relationship. That's why all these disruptions are particularly dangerous because even the people that want treatment may not come in to see the new therapist because they had confidence in the old one who suddenly abandoned them. They didn't know they got fired or they didn't know that the company lost all of its funding and left. All they know is the person I used to talk to is not around anymore, so I'm not going to go in to see somebody new. Maybe over time, if I ever got to in to see them, I'd build up that trust relationship. Describe your vision of a healthy behavioral health system. Ideally, what I would like to see would be regional mental health centers. If we had four regional mental health centers like that, each serving a quadrant of the state, we could build excellence into our system. All of that, I think, could be done if the shift was from how can we make a little profit to how can we serve more people. Thank you, Senator ortiz Pino, for sharing all of your knowledge with us. Thank you, Senator ortiz Pino. Listening to you, I learned that we need more funding sources for behavioral health in New Mexico. That's right, Edwin. I definitely agree with you about integrating additional funding sources so we don't have to rely on Medicaid. I am so grateful that Senator ortiz Pino taught me more about the real challenges in New Mexico's behavioral health system so we can create positive change. While GJ has been working on our behavioral health project, we have listened to many community members talk about the challenges they face navigating this system. The rest of our radio program tonight will consist of sharing the community's voices with you. Now, we introduce to you Violet Martinez and her story. My experience with behavioral health have been like a roller coaster. I started talk therapy roughly around the end of my grade school years. I've been on and off different medications, been diagnosed with multiple mental health disorders. My community support worker was the only one who was really helping me with life's difficulties. I was with her for a good three years. She just recently left. I got another community support worker through Open Skies. I had her for a month and then she left the facility. So now I have a new CSW. That happened with therapists, with psychiatrists. I've had over four psychiatrists in the past two years. It seemed funny because it was like the people who I, I really liked the most in Hogares left when open skies became a thing. So I felt 
even more vulnerable being around professionals that I didn't know, I wasn't acquainted with, I hadn't had a year of experience with. It did take a toll on me. It was difficult going through that. And it kind of made me almost not want to go back to get mental health help. Thank you, Violet, for being resilient and sharing your story with us. It must have been a challenge to keep changing therapists. I can't imagine how unstable you felt. Violet, for you to say that it almost made you feel like you didn't even want to get any more mental health help, it must have been really hard. Up next, we have Florence on the Machine with Shake It Out. Generation Justice also spoke to 60 other people whose lives have been personally and professionally impacted by the crisis. Here are Bernadette Dickinson, Dr. Bahati Ansari, Bill Wagner, Biana Chavez, Dr. Storm Lynn, Fred Sandoval, and Selena Sanchez with more about this crisis. Being a veteran, um, I have post-traumatic stress disorder, so I've been trying to find somebody who's actually really qualified in behavioral health not just trying to shove medications down your throat. I live in the South Valley. It's the hardest thing to try to get a therapist. The hardest. If you look at the crisis in our state, the largest mental health facility is the Metropolitan Detention Center. We have more beds there with, that are filled with patients that have psychiatric needs than anywhere else. I don't think people are talking about mental health enough or being the voice enough that Instead of realizing how important our behavioral health system was, we just kind of said, no, we can change it up. It's not a big deal. When I moved to New Mexico, there were really surprising things like someone suicidal in a rural area and there's no mental health services overnight or on the weekend and they're put in a jail cell. It's extremely difficult to find care because they just shut down all of the providers and there was nothing anybody could do about it. It is our first priority, not just to have to have a quality of life, but a life that actually improves and can be changed when we come seeking for help. I had a big problem with depression, so right away they just wanted to give me medication and just drug me. And instead of like trying to find out the reasoning for what's going on, and for like the way I was feeling. And pretty soon I was just being overly medicated to the point where I was just sitting down all day. Like I didn't move. I didn't have no type of emotion. I didn't feel mad. I didn't feel sad. I didn't want to cry. I didn't want nothing. It wasn't really helping me or like helping me get down to like the bottom of like what was really causing my depression. In New Mexico, I think they could help use to find other ways to cope with it instead of just giving them drugs or making drugs more available to deal with their situations. My message to policymakers regarding the crisis is to stop treating us like animals and stop treating us like criminals because we're just people and we just need help. I think that we're really bright and we could be thinking differently about healthcare and how to do it. In the same way that overlooking a broken arm can lead to catastrophic problems, 
Overlooking uh, mental illness can lead to catastrophic problems. Treat my illness as though I've walked into your emergency room with a gunshot to my head. It's just that important. My message to legislators is that they need to take behavioral health seriously and we get funded for it and we find doctors, give doctors incentives to come to New Mexico within the behavioral health field. I've been in the behavioral health system. I am part of the behavioral health system, so it's not like it's something out there. As New Mexicans, we're all impacted by this. It's our problem. So many are impacted by this behavioral health crisis. And as Fred Sandoval says, it affects all of us. Yes, it affects all of us, and we're all in this together. Robert Wilson, who joined us next, shared his story with us. I've personally been impacted with the behavioral health crisis by finding doors that were shut to me when I needed them. I wanted to get a, an assessment. I was tentatively diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. And I just needed to know that and uh, other things. I wanted to fill in the blanks and really understand myself to get a diagnosis if I, if I needed one or a clean bill of health if I wanted one. I went around getting referrals uh, to places that could give me a kind of comprehensive screening, specifically a genetic test for autism spectrum disorder. I couldn't get that. There was a waiting list that was six months long and there were always difficulties getting into that. What I was told was that there were so many people waiting for this kind of treatment that when universal health care coverage finally came through, everybody suddenly had the means to get this, and they were just flooding the system, and it couldn't handle it. At the same time, there were funding cuts in the places that I went to, and so their ability to serve the public was diminished at the same time when there was an increased need. Thank you, Robert Wilson, for your insightful story. I hope you and everyone who needs and deserves services can receive them. Love is one of GJ's core values. It has been said that when you love your community, you show up for it. And Generation Justice is showing up for the community with an upcoming behavioral health multimedia campaign where we will continue to share more stories, voices, and thoughts about this crisis. Yes, we have already conducted 60 interviews and more people want to talk about both the issues and solutions to this very challenging situation we have in New Mexico. We invite you to join us in this campaign on social media. Look for hashtag NMSpeaksCrisis to join our campaign. Now on to our next song for the night. It is Straight Your Mind by Desiree. We've reached the point in our show where we take some time to celebrate our community. Here's our calendar hosts, Amali Gordon-Boxbaum and Edgar Cruz. Hi, my name is Amali Gordon-Boxbaum, and I'll be your host for this evening's community calendar. And I'm Edgar Cruz. Tonight, we'll be bringing you some of the exciting events going on right here in our community. 
Are you an APS or charter school student who has been pushed out of school and wants to make APS more equitable for all students? If so, help spread the word. Join the Voices in Action Fall Festival for an exciting event to connect us to Albuquerque's cultural community. Voices in Action is a collective student youth organization working to reform our education system. Edgar, what can we expect at their first fall festival? There will be performances including the Native American Community Academy's Poetry Group and New Mexico Asian Family Center's Lion Dancers. The event will open with a blessing and ceremony with the Jingle Dancers from NACA. Food and other resources will be provided for all students. The event will be held on Tuesday, October 27th from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. at La Mesa Elementary. For more information, contact youthvoicesinaction at gmail.com. Speaking of powerful voices in our community, Voces will be hosting our next event. Voces is a youth poetry program held every summer at the National Hispanic Cultural Center. The final Friday open mic in poetry by Voces is open to the public. The slam will feature slam champions Joaquin Siwatanejo and Natasha Carrizosa. Who doesn't love a good poetry slam? Join us to witness this incredible duo make their stop here on their nationwide tour. The show will take place at Winnings Coffee on Friday, October 30th at 7 p.m. Our next event is the annual Dia de los Muertos exhibition. This year, it features altars dedicated to the lives of children lost to abuse. Cariño Perdido was created by Vecinos Artists Collective and eight of the working classroom students to honor and celebrate the lives of those lost far too early. The, mul the multimedia art installation and traditional community altar hopes to spread awareness and garner support for policy change for families at risk. New Mexico has one of the highest rates in the country for child abuse and neglect. Want to help us build community consciousness? Then join us on Friday, October 30th from 6 p.m. to 8.15 p.m. The exhibition will be held at Casa Varelas located on 1024 4th Street, Southwest Albuquerque. For more information, contact the Working Classroom at 505-242-9267. Dia de los Muertos is a time to celebrate life and death. The 23rd annual South Valley Dia de los Muertos Marigold Parade is brought to you by La, La, La Raza Unida en Cambio. The theme for the parade will be Silence is Death, Tambores Pasados, Corazones Presentes, Silence Voices Rumble, Institutions Crumble, No Somos Los Silencios. The festivities will be held at the Westside Community Center on Sunday, November 1st, starting at 2 p.m. This month is a time for our community to celebrate the voices of those living and dead. So don't miss out on these exciting events here in our community. I'm Amali Gordon-Buxbaum. And I'm Edgar Cruz. Thanks for tuning in to this week's calendar. Now, back to our hosts, Edwin and Tamara. Thank you, Edgar and Amali, for that awesome community calendar. Now we've got another song for you tonight. It's by Bright Eyes, and it's called We Are Nowhere. If you hate the taste of wine, why do you drink it till you're blind? And if you swear that there's no truth, Thank you for joining us this evening as we welcome our new fellow, Kateri Zuni. 
Generation Justice continues to grow and prosper in providing an avenue for young, for young voices. I'd like to thank the community for sharing their personal behavioral health experiences with us. Thank you to our calendar hosts for tonight's show, Amalia Gordon-Buxbaum and Edgar Cruz. Production assistance for tonight's program came from Christina Rodriguez, George Luna Peña, Melissa Harris, Roberta Rael, and Kamaria Umi. We would also like to thank our audio editors for tonight, Tamara Kolake, Katie Rizuni, and Christina Rodriguez. And last but certainly not least, much appreciation to our youth members here at Generation Justice. We could not do what we do without you. Stay connected with us by checking out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and much, much more. Our podcasts are also available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation. And a special thank you to the Conalma Health Foundation for supporting GJ's Behavioral Health Multimedia Campaign. And, of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. I'm your host, Tamara Kalaki. And I'm your co-host, Edwin Rivera. To end our program tonight, we leave you with a few closing songs. Up next on KUNM is Spoken Word. See you next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Te banompa, danliha. Pasen buenas noches. My demons are begging me to open up my mouth I need them mechanically make the words come out They fight me, vigorous and angry, watch them No combination of words I could put on the back of a postcard No song that I could sing but I can try for your heart Our dreams and they are made out of real things Like a shoebox of photographs with sepia tone loving Love is the answer at least for most of the questions of my heart Like why are we here and enough to start a war all that I